Welcome to the Intercollegiate Podcast. I'm Daniel Libet. This is episode five. I'm coming to you after a two-week hiatus owing to Thanksgiving. Evidently, that is what this job has required. (laughs) But in any case, I hope you had a happy holiday. Where we left off last was on our November 19th episode with Chris Yandel a former college sports information director who has since become a fairly strident and pointed critic of college athletics. In this episode, my guest is someone who has migrated the other way across the media continuum. Mark Alicia is currently the communications director at Indiana State University, a job he has held since August. Before that, Mark had one of the most decorated, impactful, and enterprising college sports journalism careers of anybody over the last 30-plus years. Beginning decades before the rest of the beat caught up to him, Mark was using public record-driven reporting to illuminate the deeper and at times darker realities of college sports and the sporting world beyond. He was way ahead of the curve when it came to looking into the finances of intercollegiate athletic departments and the economic hypocrisies of amateurism. Mark spent his last 16 years working for the Indianapolis Star as a sports enterprise and general investigative reporter, where, among his other duties, he covered the indie-based NCAA as a kind of sub-beat. Last year, he was named Indiana's Journalist of the Year for a body of work that included his central role in breaking the Larry Nassar sexual abuse scandal. That bombshell followed and was prompted by public records reporting that he did looking into the way USA Gymnastics disgracefully ignored sexual assault allegations made against the program's coaches. But not long after Mark received his latest journalistic honor, with his mantle now brimming with hardware, He took a buyout at the Star and left the journalism business altogether, a monumental loss for the Fourth Estate and quite a coup for Indiana State. In our conversation, which runs just under an hour, Mark and I discuss his remarkable career in sports journalism and what life is now like operating at the other end of the media spectrum. And so, without further ado, here is Mark Alicia. All right, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to have you. Now, as a, as a recent former journalist who has moved to PR, I want to know whether or not we should do the self-flagellation at the beginning of our conversation or at the end. <laughs> Your choice. No. Uh, let, well, let's just say right now that uh, my, uh, what I say on here are my own opinions and uh, not... Uh, not the opinions and the policy of Indiana State University. So uh, we'll just get that clear and then we can move along. Fair enough. That, that's, that's a good disclosure there. Um, where did you go to, the, where did you go to uh, college? Indiana University. And you were at the student newspaper, I presume? I was. Seven semesters at the Indiana Daily Student. Who was, uh, who was an interesting sports figure on campus at that time? Uh, that would be Bob Knight. <laughs> so did you uh, did your run-ins with him begin when you were a student journalist? No, um, but uh, I did 
have occasion to cover a game at Michigan where uh, IU lost, close game, and uh, Bill Frieder, the coach at the time, got upset with, uh, or got night upset because supposedly uh, at one point in the game, Frieder had yelled for the officials to give Knight a technical, give him a technical. And Knight came into the interview room uh, and he, and Frieder was in there and he started in on Frieder, then Frieder left. And then he uh, continued with just this uh, profane rant about how he had helped Frieder and then Frieder knifed him in the back or something like that. So uh, the next, uh, the next day, um, working on the story on a Sunday for the Monday student newspaper. Uh, I wrote it as if it were a soap opera wrap up. And uh, we had a, a big debate about first whether to use the profanity verbatim, which we did. Good and for then, you. And then we had to, uh, then we had to decide a proper punctuation of uh, the profanity, which I, I probably shouldn't repeat that here, but that it was sort of funny, uh, you know, in, in that very earnest college way of uh, uh, discussing the proper punctuation of Coach Knight's profanity. <laughs> that is not in the AP style guide. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so the fact that you went to school um, and sort of began your, your journalism education in the environment of Bob Knight, do you think that had some impact on how you then would later approach the coverage of college sports? Um, possibly. Uh, it might have had a little impact. I mean, I think what it did was uh, it uh, probably gave me somewhat thicker skin, but at the same time also made all these interactions with sources of you know, a little scary. There are, uh, there's a long line of former Indiana Daily student basketball beat writers who have Bob Knight stories, uh, including one uh, where uh, Bob Kravitz, now of The Athletic, uh, went into his office for an interview. And as the story goes, Knight was completely naked. Um, <laughs> that might have been yeah. the most pleasant interaction <laughs> I've ever heard of a night of a night reporter yeah, get um, together. No, you know, um, I think a little bit during college and then definitely afterward, I, I found myself kind of um, drawn to the off-the-field stories. I, I began to sense a sort of sameness to the regular beat coverage. Um, So-and-so uh, had an ACL, and a year later, he's back, and the games even started to kind of blur together. Um, and what I found most interesting was uh, filing public records requests at a time when that was not at all routine. Yeah, so um, I, I, I want to talk to you. writers. Yeah, well, absolutely, and, and uh, truly not, not routine. So what, what time frame are we talking about? Uh, okay, I'm dating myself here. I was, uh, yeah, I was trying to politely I, I ask you to do that. <laughs> um, I graduated in, uh, well, I left school one class short in 1985. I finished up in 1989. I started professionally uh, as a journalist in 1986 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
And there, and there you did cover night directly, right? I did. Um, and I, uh, checked out some of the clips to prepare for this podcast. Uh, it was, I was about, oh, I don't know, 22 or 23 years old. It was a, a night game at Minnesota in, uh, I think January of, of, uh, 1987. And that was the year they won the national championship. And, uh, earlier that week, the faculty Senate had passed some kind of resolution that said that uh, coaches should not uh, demean, berate, yell at, hit players. And it was uh, pretty obvious who it was aimed at, and it had gotten national publicity. And uh, I was just, I was determined to ask his reaction, because we didn't get no regular media availabilities with him. And as I recall, that almost never happened. So the only chance you had was after games. So I'm 22 or 23. I'm on deadline. Uh, after uh, an IU victory uh, at, uh, at Minnesota, and uh, one of the first questions I probably raised my voice, I looked back at the clips and asked him uh, you know, what, what his reaction was to the faculty senate. And he said, oh, I don't know anything about that. And I followed up again. You know, it had been reported nationally. So I didn't, you know, I, I look, I, I don't even know about that. And then I, I think I started for a third time. Um, and he went off. He, he went nuts. Um, he yelled at me. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're doing. What are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And this guy doesn't go in the locker room. Okay, so now I'm on deadline. I'm about 22 or 23 standing there. And uh, I'm not really knowing what to do. And uh, an assistant coach who was known for smoothing over some of Knight's tirades came up to me and tried to make it a little better. I never did get in the locker room. But I was directed after about five minutes. Coach Knight wants to talk to you. He was sitting on a bench press at uh, Williams Arena in Minnesota, and I was directed to take a seat in front of the King. And uh, he actually, he, he said, um, you know, it looked like I shook you up. And I said, yeah, you were screaming in my ear. And then he said, well, there are a lot of a-holes in your business who wouldn't have been shook up by that. <laughs> so wait, then, was, he, was he saying that as a compliment to you? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I was rattled. Yeah. Um, and uh, then he, he did apologize and other people, uh, including, uh, his sort of personal PR person who was the local newspapers beat writer at the time, wrote a book saying no apologies were forthcoming, Hmm. but he did. And I think what he said was he was sorry for rattling me, not, for uh, reacting to my third question on the faculty senate resolution, uh, so um, I leave. I write my story. Didn't have many quotes, uh, and then on the way out, a reporter from the St. Paul paper stopped me and asked me what happened. Well, the the, the uh, headline the next day in the St. Paul Pioneer Press was "Gophers lose game, Knight loses cool." And so I, 
a headline uh, that you could probably swap the the opponent's name out for and and copy and paste that for the next you know however many dozen years <laughs> um uh, yes uh, certainly on uh, certain occasions during during that time uh I do recall it was about five below zero, but it never felt better to get outside and <laughs> <laughs> in weather that cold uh, as it did that night. And it got some publicity and people, people were telling me, oh, he'll respect you now. You stood up to him. He'll respect you. And really nothing changed the rest of the year. I mean, there was nothing, nothing else bad happened, but it wasn't like uh, uh, I got any... Uh, special treatment that I, you know, wasn't receiving before. So I want to go back to your in early interest and recognition of the potential of public records reporting in the domain of college sports, because you're right, I, I still feel even today when it's just terribly easy to file a public records request, it's still underutilized. I can't imagine who, if besides you were trying to do that back in the day where it was this was all done by probably paper letters and waiting long periods of time and yeah, oh, and, yeah. and so forth so what what inspired this because it, clearly it wasn't the conventions of sports journalism that would have inspired you to start uh doing public records yeah. requests um well i'll tell you a quick story about what it was like to do that back then um after i had i i started a a series that I called UCLA Sports Inc. A look at the books, and this would have been. This is uh, when you 19... were at the LA Daily News. That's right, 1992, I think it was, and I had filed a lot of records requests. And the athletic director, uh, the late Peter Dallas, um, took me in his office, and he said, "Mark, lighten up, will you?" let's go have a beer or something. And, you know, I knew better than, than that. Um, I didn't want to be disrespectful of the guy, but that was, uh, it, that sort of reflected the attitude at the time. I think that, uh, you know, let's just go, let's go have a beer and, you know, I'll be sure to take care of you some of the time, as long as you don't, uh, uh reach too far. And, um, so I, I ended up uh, finishing that series. Now, the, the name of it, UCLA Sports Inc., was a nod to Murray Sperber, who was an Indiana University English professor, who I did not know when I was a student there. But uh, I got to know him after I left IU. And, of course, he wrote uh, some of the top books on college sports at the time, one of which was... Uh, uh, college Sports Inc., uh, the university versus the athletic department. And then he went on and he, he had uh, written a few more books uh, that uh, that were just tremendous. And uh, I, I'm not sure I, he, he inspired me about uh, public records requests, but he certainly inspired me to go after to those kinds of stories, the kinds of stories that I was uh, that I was going after, uh, where's the money coming from, how much, uh, how's it being spent, what does the bottom line look like, all of that thing. And, uh, uh, you know, I had learned public records in college, of course, but I, I don't remember the exact details, but I 
do recall realizing, wow, there's some, there's some real potential here. Um, this is information that I can get. Well, and when you think, because what you mentioned, you know, having come out of college, your interest in sports writing was the stuff off the field, but that is interpreted in two different ways. And the way that you pursued it is not traditionally the way that sports writers who say they like to write about the issues off the field do. Uh, to, uh, my, in my estimation, for the most part, the people who make that claim like to write saccharine feature stories about you know, athletes overcoming trials and tribulations or, 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 or the, the buttery stuff, not the actual digging and investigative and enterprising journalism that, that you know, is, is the public service component, uh, by my lights, of, of what we really do. So, you know, that, that's, I, would, I kind of wanted you to reflect a little bit on just how you saw your, your fellow, once you got into this mindset of how you wanted to approach college sports coverage, how you saw the rest of the sports media that covered college sports, because you really did kind of stand alone in, in many respects of the kinds of stuff you were doing. Well, I, I mean, I can't remember. It's, it's quite possible there were some other people doing it. Um, and I also want to say, being a, a beat writer is hard. I mean, I, when I did UCLA Sports Inc. and I did my stories for the LA Daily News, I was a beat writer, and uh, I just had the confidence that uh, I could do that type of work and cover the beat. In which addition, I did. right? In addition to the right, to the yes, yes. But you know, especially now, you've got to when when access is so limited. Um, Beat writers have, it's a tough job. Uh, it's a, it's tough not to crack to really get behind the scenes. At UCLA at that time, as I look back, the access was just unbelievable, um, except for maybe the quarterback on a day or two the week of a football game. Just about anybody was available anytime because it was a very competitive sports and entertainment environment all over town and they wanted the attention so there was a lot of a lot of access so um, as i was going along i well partly i liked it because there was no competition for what i was doing but right. for once once in a while there would be a nice little scoop like uh, oh hey the uh the football coach signed an extension and uh this includes an annuity if he stays until whatever date. Um, now, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, just about everybody is keeping tr uh, on top of that. Uh, the coach's contract, contract status, um, universities just announce extensions because they know the reporters are going to get it. Well, and they've anyways. turned it almost, they've kind of turned it on its head from something that they would have wanted to keep secret and private, or at least not make a big deal about into now another form of the entertainment a value of, of what they're doing and, and, and the kind of comp, the competitive notion of what they're, of what they're doing, which is what, what are their coaches are in comparison to their conference, you know, rivals. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I suppose there, there probably is, uh, is some of that. Um, it's just uh, the recruiting is just such a fierce game. Uh, the series as it uh, was back then. I wanted to ask you to go back to the series you wrote um, about uh, that was sort of playing off the Murray Sperber book title for the LA Daily News. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you you tried to calculate the market values of the UCLA basketball players, I guess, in 1994. That was right. That was separate. That was a that different was something series. Different. Yeah, that wasn't UCLA Sports League. That was that was a four day series of stories. Um, but yeah, in uh, so t- I wanted so, that so, to be right. So tell tell me a little bit about that because that was extremely prescient. Not only insofar as you address something decades ago that now is a is a topic of of major conversation in college sports, but that you one of the one of the people that you try to calculate their salaries for while he was a player was Ed O'Bannon of, of obvious uh, fame now as the, uh, as the lead uh, plaintiff against the NCAA and, and, and the video game makers on name, image, and likeness. But can you give me a little bit of the, of the, uh, of the impetus of that series, looking at what yeah, well, the value of, of top college athletes is? I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do it for UCLA Sports Inc., but then it just got to be, overwhelming so it was on the shelf for a year or a year or two as i gathered string and uh i i I just had this sense that of course these guys are worth more than the value of the scholarship i mean uh that seemed obvious to me now calculating it what i did was pretty crude i mean it was uh uh you know uh half of the I took half of the revenue and then I uh uh just uh, doled it out by minutes played mm. um and that's how I came to some of these figures um at Oban and I've got it in front of me now uh, 420,000 uh, Ty said me 420,000 did uh, um, did you ever have a chance since I don't know if they saw it but did you ever have a chance to have the conversations with the players about this topic generally? Um, I, I can't say that, we, uh, you know, there were any deep conversations about it. Um, there is a former, a player on that national championship team from 1995 uh, at UCLA, Cameron Dollar. And I remember his quote was something like, uh, well, you know, if you get to the league, you get over on the system, but if you don't get to the league, the system gets over on you. Hmm. Um, and I, I might've even used that, uh, in the, in the piece. I, uh, I talked with uh, Donnie Edwards who uh, became a, a really good player, uh, in the NFL. He might've been a pro bowler. I don't know, but he was a quarterback or a linebacker for UCLA at the time. And, uh, he just came out, just, he just came out and said, I, you know, I, cut money from my food budget to, to get by. Um, but then I do recall some players just sort of scoffing at the whole notion. Uh, uh, one, I think it was a USC quarterback, if I remember correctly, um, just saying, oh, this isn't even an issue. Right, um, right. And, and I think that, you know, uh, I appreciate very much that, that you recognized uh, you know, that that was uh, kind of cutting edge. Uh, back then, there had been a little bit done on that by uh, mostly by academics, but uh, I, I sure don't think there was anything like that uh, in, in sort of mainstream media. Were your editors at the? I mean, obviously, insofar as this stuff got published, they were receptive. But when when you were pitching this to your bosses, was this the kind of stuff 
the kind of sports journalism that interested them or did you feel like you had to ram this through the no the... i um i was very fortunate um the sports editor at the time uh, was a guy named rick vasic and ucla sports inc won a pretty prestigious award the associated press sports editors for uh, uh enterprise reporting in the top circulation category so i know he liked that <laughs> and uh so the second time around, it, well, even the first time around, it really wasn't a tough sell. Um, and then the assistant sports editor at the time was uh, Kevin Dale. And uh, as I remember, they were nothing but supportive. When did you then go to the Indianapolis Star? I went to the Star in 2002. And the job that you took was to do what? Well, it was... Um, I think the title was sports enterprise writer. And uh, that was going to include some investigations, some features, some uh, uh, sidebars at certain games. I, I went to both Super Bowls and did sidebars from both Colts Super Bowls. I mean, uh, and, uh, and that would be, you know, that fit me perfectly. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but, just with me and, and, and what I do and my approach to a job like that, it was, uh, it got more into investigations and, or, or, or enterprise, not necessarily, uh, exposing some horrible wrongdoing, but maybe, uh, shining some light on things that people wouldn't know about, uh, special admits. And, uh, well, one that I liked was, uh, I went back, I think, for the last 20 years, and I took the players uh, from the men's Final Four who had played more than, I think, five minutes in one of the games. So that was my cohort. And graduation status is what's called directory information. Uh, and uh, that's public. Right. Directory information without, is something without that... Without any like dispute, that, right. Right, right. And... Uh, what came out of that, though, what was interesting was, well, first of all, the, the graduation rate was, was pretty good, better than I thought it would be. I can't remember what, but it was definitely better than what I thought. But what came out of that is a lot of also directory information was uh, what the degree was in or the major of the person. And uh, North Carolina had three basketball players at the time who were African-American studies majors. And so I was on to that um, at that point. I mean, it wasn't anything I was going to follow up. My, uh, my friend Dan Kane um, from Raleigh is, uh, you know, did an amazing job reporting on that North Carolina right, the academic major academic scandal. Right. But he, he told me at one point, do you realize how close you were to... <laughs> you know, getting, getting us into that or, uh, or, or doing it yourself. And yeah, but that just wasn't something I was going to be able to report from Indianapolis. Well, one of the things that you just based on what you mentioning that you did enterprise as opposed to investigations, trying to uncover deep corruption is that a lot of the issues and problems of college sports really live on the surface. They're right in front of everyone and it doesn't require, this is not, you know, the kind of searchlight 
Boston Globe investigation of the Catholic Church. This is, it's all there to be seen. It just needs to be noticed. And, and this has been a problem in college sports journalism is that it just goes unnoticed too often. Well, what, what, what parts are you referring to? Because, I mean, there's still stuff that, well, that you've even done re- recently that sure looked like it required a, a lot of work in terms of right but it's not class. right i mean but a lot of the things does not require certainly there are major scandals to be broken that really do require digging deep and getting good human intelligence but then there's a lot of things that are just compiling the documents compiling the numbers pointing out the things that anybody might notice in terms of the relationships between main campus and an athletic department and who's benefiting and who's not and what are the incentives and how are they being driven i think most people if they thought deeply and critically about this could kind of hazard a good guess of how the system works or at least where to look um most of what i've done i would say for the you know over the last couple of years has more or less just been to substantiate it with a document or the figures but i i don't think i'm I don't think I'm telling people something that they couldn't imagine on their own about college sports if they yeah, just uh, were took off their fan glasses for a moment and, and kind of thought critically about it. Yeah. Um, well, there was a time when I, I thought that, uh, and I saw your last uh, guest was Sonny Vaccaro, who's going to be, who's a tough act for me to follow. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, 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 I lost my train of thought here. Well, where were we on the? We were just talking about sort of what what is the st- where does one really find the stories at the heart of college sports, and are they how difficult are they to uncover, or what or how to sort of substantiate them in some ways? Well, I mean, um, again, you know, for a beat writer, it's a it's a really tough balance, um, you know. Uh, especially now, like I was saying about with access being controlled so heavily um, and they need that access. And uh, if they kind of go rogue, um, there can be issues. That's why I think uh, the kind of reporting that you're talking about probably has to be done by somebody else other than the beat writer. And as we know, newspaper staffs are always shrinking and there aren't that many people around who who will have the time to to do that kind of reporting so i was i'm curious about the the job you had in some ways of covering the ncaa organizationally as your local beat because the ncaa is based in indianapolis and that's where you were reporting um insofar as there was a a NCAA beat reporter in America, it sort of was you to some extent. Yeah, uh, for a while, um, it, the, the sorts of resources we put, uh, or the Indy Star put to it, um, you know, it's unthinkable today. I, I, I went to Washington, D.C. for night commission meetings. Uh, I went to NCAA conventions, not that there was a whole lot going on there, but it was a place to meet people and and talk with people. Um, I still did other things. It wasn't, uh, it, it was not a full-time beat, but uh, I, I spent a fair amount of time there uh, and uh, uh, got to know some of the top people a little bit. 
Tell me about the finance and revenue reporting that you began, and then, at least as far as I can tell, USA Today, which was a fellow Gannett newspaper, um, kind of took up from that point. Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, I'm, I wasn't thrilled about that either. Because uh, this was this was initially your doing. Yes, it was it collecting. Was. Yes. Yeah. T- yes, can you explain was. explain the kinds of yeah. documents you were compiling? <laughs> well, um, just uh, really. If you just spend some time browsing the NCAA website um, as a reporter, you could find some really great stuff. Um, there would be uh, little tidbits about uh, something uh, something that was said in a meeting or an or or an agenda for a meeting, like when they changed the name of uh, uh, Division One A and One AA. Uh, I'm pretty sure I broke that story with uh, not that it was a huge blockbuster, but um, you know, uh, to this day, I think people still get confused with uh, FCS uh, and uh, and that sort of thing. But anyways, as bro- as I was browsing um, through their website, I found a reference to uh, to a financial report that the NCAA asked for and wanted uh, annually. And it was different from what uh, the Department of Education puts out. This one was much more detailed, and it broke things down by sport. Uh, it was the most detail I'd ever seen uh, in, uh, in, an, in an NCAA financial document that, that, that covered numerous schools. So in, uh, let's see, it was before a Final Four, I think it would have been 2006, 2006 Final Four. Uh, that report, I think, was due maybe mid-January. I worked like crazy to get as many of those reports from as many public schools as I could um, with the help of a computer programmer and a great editor named Ted Green. Um we put that stuff into a searchable database and we cranked out some pretty good stories. And afterward, I got all sorts of uh, uh, sports economists asking me for the data, which I happily shared as long as they were going to get credit. Uh, and we got uh, some good stories out of it. And I was, uh, I was really proud of that. Um, that was a, that was a big effort, and that was groundbreaking, really, at that time for that data uh, to be out there. For what so were some of the schools. things? What were some of the big takeaways that you learned in the course well, of gathering that? I think, um, as I recalled, um, I think we tried to do uh, something on oh uh, the percentage of. Uh, money that was made by say a football program and the percentage that was returned to players in the form of grants and aid um, which is always rather small um, the uh, the amount to which uh, the public was contributing to the cost of of the enterprise um, the extent to which students at certain schools were contributing to the enterprise through student fees. Um, it was uh, it was a big deal. It's one of the things I'm most proud of, actually. 
Can you can you tell me a little bit? I know you've spoken publicly. You've spoken on national platforms about the way in which you uh, came to break the Larry Nasser story. But could you give a little summary for for our audience? Oh, sure, I'd love to. Um, my colleague uh, got a tip from a local. There was a law Georgia was suing USA Gymnastics, saying that it was negligent because it had been warned about the coach who had molested her because he had done it at other clubs and other places early on. Uh, my colleague went down to Georgia, a small town in Georgia, Springfield, Georgia, I think, and went to the courthouse and came back with, uh, with all the documents and we started to learn through our reporting, uh, myself and two other reporters, um, that uh, USA Gymnastics had a policy of um, literally filing away complaints if they weren't signed by the athlete um, or the athlete's parent. And uh, of course, that uh, literally was just a way of conveniently washing their hands of something that uh, that might be difficult. So we uh, we. We published our first story on the eve of the Rio Olympics, and it had nothing to do with Larry Nasser. Um, I knew who he was. I died just he was this big time gymnastics doctor. Well, the day that that story ran, um, of course, we got um, all sorts of messages and phone calls, but one of them, the emails came from a woman named Rachel Dunn Hollander. And her email said, I don't know if you're interested in this. I was abused by a doctor, not uh, a coach. And she said, I will put my name to this. I'll do whatever it takes to get this out there. She said that uh, she saw this as her chance. Um, she thought that uh, other, other uh, means of getting it out that she had thought about were unrealistic. People wouldn't believe her. She saw this as her chance. So I went down to Louisville, um, myself and a photographer. Uh, Rachel uh, lived in a, in a very, very modest small house with her husband. Um, toys outside. They had, I think, three kids, all five and under at the time. Uh, books lined the shelves. Rachel's a lawyer. Um, her husband in, was in divinity school at the time. And we sat down. And uh, we did the interview, and she said, uh, I think she even said in her book that some of the things she said in that interview were things that uh, her husband was hearing for the first time. Um, it was extraordinary. Uh, this was a woman who was, you could tell right away, was poised, um, sincere, smart, believable. And I, I do remember saying to her, Rachel, if this goes anywhere, there are going to be a lot of people who want to hear from you. And then she says in her book, uh, yeah, when he said that, I, I thought, oh, yeah, right. I really doubted that. So uh, the story ran. Um, Rachel was the only one named. And uh, there was a, a lawsuit in California that had, filed, had, that had been filed anonymously by a woman who uh, later uh, came out publicly as Jamie Dancher, former Olympian. Um, and then uh, also uh, 
we heard from a former rhythmic gymnast, you know, where they throw the balls around and twirl the ribbons and right. stuff. Um, named Jessica Howard. She called me on our left a message for me on a Sunday night uh, before uh, maybe bef- uh, before the first Nasser story, and she she told this uh, she told the story about uh, you know uh, she didn't know the other women, and her story just lined up with theirs, and uh, we we published. Larry Nasser was a beloved figure. Yeah, before so let, I, just to keep it chronological, before you published, do you remember your first or any notable interactions you had with Michigan State's um, communications department or sports information department as you were making inquiries at the university about? This? No, no, nothing. Um, they didn't. They didn't respond, or you just don't remember. I'm trying to remember what. Uh, I, there was nothing like, hey, hey, we heard you're sniffing around. What are you doing? Uh, there was nothing like that. Um, I don't recall what their first reaction was. Um, it might have been a no comment. I'd have to go back and look at the. Did you, so the, uh, sto- the, the story, story itself. Pu- the story publishes, and what was your experience the day it published? If you um, as best as you can remember, sure. There were. Um, well, as, it was just sort of uh, uh, just uh, at first, if a few more women came forward, and then we were monitoring the Clary Act report, which uh, schools are required to put online on uh, uh, regarding uh, reports of crimes. And what we did was we were starting to count the reports to Michigan State Police that uh, occurred at the address where Nasser worked. Or at the address of his home, and uh, we were seeing those just really start to pile up, and uh, from there it just it just snowballed. Um, uh, but what's interesting is that this illustrates how beloved Nasser was. He was a candidate for school board when that story came out, and uh, he took himself out of the race. Uh, but he couldn't get his name off the ballot. Um, it was too late. And so in November of 2016, the first Nasser story came out in September. He got 21% of the vote. Hmm. I think it was about 1,500 people. That's how many people still believed he couldn't have possibly done all this. And then they found the child porn. And some people said, oh, he, oh they, they, they planted it. Uh, and then there the well the, the federal charges, federal porn charges came, and I pleaded guilty to that. I went there, but um, that didn't get a whole lot of attention. But uh, one the, the the sentencing that everybody remembers was uh, on the state charges, where uh, the just a parade of really brave women. Bared their soul, yeah. Bared their soul, bared their deep, you know, deepest secrets. Um, but, but, but what was good about that is uh, I, I heard many of them say that that was helpful, that was therapeutic. And then at the end, when uh, well, Rachel gave a very Rachel was the last of the 
survivors to speak. And she gave uh, a really eloquent address. I actually rode with uh, she and her husband uh, from uh, Kalamazoo, from the house she, drew, she grew up in, to the courtroom in Lansing. And I, I remember asking her, what are you going to say? And that, in, in retrospect, that was just, she must have thought, what a dumb question, because she had prepared about a 40-minute speech that was just so eloquent and so grounded um, in in her faith and um, it, it would you know it was impossible uh, to just get a real quick quote but then uh, then after Rachel spoke the uh, uh, the lead prosecutor Angela Povolitis spoke and she gave her closing argument and uh, I'll never forget this moment um, she, in the middle of, of, of uh, her closing argument, she talked about the importance of investigative reporting in newspapers. And then she said something to the effect of, let this sink in. If it wasn't for Rachel and the investigative reporters at the Indianapolis Star, this guy, and then she turned and she looked at NASA, this guy, would still be out there practicing at the corner of, and then she named two nearby streets where he worked. Um, for so her what, yeah, to, what do you what do you make of that now? Do you did you feel that well, the story I, was inevitable to come out at some point, or was it just purely the circumstance of the story, the Enterprise piece that you that the star I, had done, and the phone I call? I don't think the scope. I don't think the scope of it was uh, inevitable. And in fact, there were uh, other women who had come forward uh, as early as uh, maybe 10 or 15 years earlier, and they simply weren't believed. Uh, or or the, the, the police handled it really poorly. Um, one athlete uh, um, was told by her coach, and I think she's uh, under, well, I shouldn't say, I don't know what her situation is, but the former uh, Michigan State gymnastics coach said something to the effect of, uh, you know, you don't want to do this. Uh, are you sure? Are you sure? Larry would never do something that wasn't medically right. Um, so I don't think it was inevitable that the scope of it would have come out. Um, but this could have been stopped so much earlier and uh did you ever have a chance to ask rachel why she didn't feel there was an opportunity to, before she reached out to uh you and your colleagues to go to the press um i think she felt that uh it was hopeless um at the time thinking that it was her versus um this beloved coach who had worked four or five Olympic games and had uh, plaques all over his office from famous gymnasts. Uh, she did not think she would be believed, but after our first story, which again, didn't even mention Nasser, she thought this was her chance. And what do you, in, in retrospect, how do you evaluate the way that Michigan State has handled this? I'm going to try to narrow that down a little bit. 
in terms of their public response to this, their messaging, the statements they've made, and how they've handled or dealt with reporters who have tried to report on this story? I don't know how long, how far I want to go down this particular road, but um, clearly what they've done uh, or didn't do has uh, been a colossal failure. The survivors are still out there pushing for them to uh, uh, waive their legal right to keep certain documents secret. Um, I mean, to this day, well, uh, it's uh, more than three years after our story, and they're, they're, they, they still have to be out there pushing the board of trustees, um, pushing for, the, for access to some of this information that would perhaps close the story, tell the, the, the full story of who is responsible. Is, there, is this just the phenomenon of bureaucracies in general, or is there something specific about college sports or I, higher education that makes for that kind of response to this kind of scandal? I'm, I'm here at Indiana State University, and um, we're in the Missouri Valley Conference, of course, and uh, we are not uh, a huge sports program, although we are certainly quite competitive, especially in baseball, um, nationally. At a level like that, I, uh, it's hard for me to, at, at Michigan State, it's hard for me to imagine everything that was going through people's minds. Um, all that money that was at stake, um, not just in perhaps new uh, lawsuits, uh, but who knows, uh, enrollment, um, the reputation of that, of their brand. Uh, for me, sitting in this chair, um, you know, having gone from journalism uh, to, to university communications not that long ago, it's, uh, it's hard to fathom. But I've, I've long thought that people in not just college sports, but people defending their lot in life or defending their position in large lucrative institutions um, to tend not to uh, tend to lose uh, their moral compass if, if they if they ever had one so let's let's tell them the story about how you ended up where you are today you you ultimately took a buyout at the Indianapolis Star um, when was that? That was earlier this year? Yeah, uh, it started in January. About a year ago was when the buyout uh, was offered. I was not confident about the future of uh, corporate local journalism. And uh, frankly, I, I wanted to do something different. Um, my wife uh, is uh, a career teacher. She was actually eligible for retirement at that time, although we both have lots and lots of years uh, to, to still work. So she was sort of at a crossroads and uh, we decided to take the plunge. It was a generous offer that Gannett made. I wasn't sure that offer would uh, would ever come again. Yeah. And it, uh, it gave me uh, time to just sort of decompress a little 
and then go out and try to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I'm very fortunate to be here at uh, Indiana State University. Um, it really is a, it's a terrific institution. They've, they've welcomed me uh, as a, coming from the world of journalism to try to help communicate uh, all the really good things that, that are happening here. We're a we're an institution where half of the freshmen are Pell Grant eligible and half of the student body is first generation college students. And, you know, now I'm slipping into PR mode, Daniel, but That's give me right. another second here. That's all um, right. It's, it's, it's extraordinary um, what, what's accomplished here. And uh, uh, my job's going to be to kind of try to get that, get that word out beyond uh, the Wabash Valley here. And uh, we're, we're in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, Western uh, Indiana, about an hour from Indianapolis uh, on the Illinois uh, state line. And um, it's, it's a terrific institution that has really um, raised people's lot in life. We, we win a lot of awards for uh, social mobility. We really lift people up here, and uh, I like that. Uh, we don't have a lot of silver spoon kids uh, enrolled here. Um, these are people really working their way up, and that's, that's super gratifying. And I should say, too, um, our athletic department, I have very little uh, contact uh, with them just because they have their own sports information director. But, uh, yeah, would that have been yeah. would that have been a move you would have been able to make to go and maybe not specifically at this school, but to do communications, but to do it for an athletic department, or was that a I doubt uh, it bridge too far? I doubt it. I mean, no, I could have. I think. I mean, I'd like to think I could have. Oh, I'm sure they would have uh, made I'm a sure case. There's an athletic that, department but... that would have loved to have you. Yeah, <laughs> on the inside. But, um, but I would not, um, I wouldn't have enjoyed that. Um, I, part of what I like here is that I'm ex uh, in the job I'm currently in is I'm exposed to really all aspects of the university and, uh, and just really smart people from different disciplines. I, um, attend speeches, panels. I try to get to know some of the faculty so I can try to promote what they're doing um, outside of here. That's really, really enjoyable for me. But uh, uh, I, I admire our athletic department. That uh, They have the smallest budget in the Missouri Valley uh, Conference and they are, and they still um, compete and it's interesting now this uh, kind of brings it back to the you know the value of college sports and that sort of thing i was in a meeting recently and we were talking about student retention that's a big deal especially with college age people uh, there's going to be a decline uh, coming up here if it hasn't started already and how do we keep our students and somebody mentioned um high up that um Really, the athletic department kind of does what we would like to do for a lot of students. I mean, they, they have, a, I mean, we have great academic support, but the athletic department has their athletic or their academic support, financial support, coaches motivating them. And you know what? Most importantly, I think 
they get out there with that name, Indiana State University, on their jersey every day. And I think there's a, there's a sense of, of belonging that comes with that. And uh, there are probably some lessons the rest of the university can learn from that. Well, look, I, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. You have a very interesting path, and though it's not, increasingly, it's no longer atypical to see people from journalism go into communications, uh, the kind of journalists that you were, and now having gone into the world of the of higher education, which you covered, at least a component of that, so uh, interestingly and critically for so many years, I think that, that sort of stands out as a as a as an interesting story of a of a journalist of a former journalist right i i really appreciate that daniel and i'll and i'll, I'll say too that uh, I've, I've followed your work over the years and it's it's just outstanding uh, especially since some of it was done pretty far away from the institution you were reporting on um well now so that we so don't now that, now that public records requests are so easy to do online we can all do everything remotely <laughs> now, 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 let's get something straight here. Uh, I uh, I don't approve records requests. That's I was going to put in the counsel. last. Yeah, I was going to just. <laughs> I was just going to put in a plug. I was going to ask the next time I make a FOIA, I do not want any denials now. Well, uh, you take take that up with our general counsel. I will very happily stay out of that. That was Mark Alicia. I would like to thank him for joining me on the podcast. You can find our previous episodes by going to www.theintercollegiate.com, where you can also find your way to our weekly email dispatch newsletter of intent. Our current issue out this week makes the case for a youth athlete Coogan Law. You can sign up directly for the newsletter by going to theintercollegiate.substack.com. Now is typically when I mention our creative partnership with the College Sport Research Institute, but I can be a little bit more specific this time. CSRI and the Intercollegiate will soon be launching a weekly segment to this podcast featuring academics who have published in CSRI's official peer-reviewed Journal of Issues in Intercollegiate Athletics, You can look for that to commence as soon as next week's episode. And so, until then, I'm Daniel Libet.